for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to order. And to begin with, I'd like to uh, ask unanimous consent that we introduce three letters into the record at this hearing. One is from the number of companies in the United States of America in favor of the tax treaties. One is from the Business Roundtable and other executive organizations. And one is from the ambassadors and embassy organizations of the countries affected by the treaty. So without objection, that will be entered into the record. I want to thank our witnesses for being here today and Senator Mendez for being here today. This is an important hearing for a lot of American businesses. It means more business for the United States and it means predictable regulation in terms of many foreign businesses and opportunities overseas. We're going to consider eight tax treaties, several of which are, this committee has considered in the past. The importance of tax treaties to American business and individuals is underappreciated and not widely understood, including, I'll admit, by myself until I was asked to chair this hearing and got into the details of it. For any business, one of the greatest disincentives to expand and take advantage of new opportunity is uncertainty. For governments, ensuring a favorable climate, business, business climate environment by minimizing uncertainty is one of the most important things we can do to help U.S. businesses grow. The United States uses a worldwide tax system that taxes the income of a U.S. citizen, resident, or corporation, whether the income is earned in the United States or in a foreign country. A worldwide system of taxation would often result in double taxation if not for tax treaties. Tax treaties ensure certainty by establishing rules that on what foreign income may be taxed by the country in which it's earned and how much tax may be withheld in foreign income. Tax treaties benefit United States businesses and citizens in a number of ways by facilitating trade, foreign investment, and by preventing double taxation. They provide U.S. investors with greater certainty about the tax burden that by ensuring the treaties are equally and fairly overseas and by allowing them to invest and compete abroad with a thorough knowledge of how the regulations in that country will work. Tax treaties strengthen the ability of the United States business to explore many new opportunities abroad by establishing a predictable framework where new taxation will be structured. Further tax treaties provide tools to help resolve tax disputes between the United States and other countries. Without those tools, United States investors would have limited ability to resolve these problems on their own. It's not just businesses that benefit from tax treaties, as they also impose reasonable limits on the amount of tax other countries may levy or can impose or withhold on a U.S. person or one who might live or work overseas. Tax treaties also help ensure that the United States maintains an appropriate tax base by preventing tax fraud. In previous Congresses, this committee has responded with similar treaties and conventions and protocols with Chile, Hungary, Luxembourg, Poland, Spain, Switzerland, and the OECD Mutual Assistance Protocol. Today, we will be, for the first time, we'll hear about the update to the new treaty with Japan. It's time to move these treaties forward for the full service of, from the, to the full Senate and for a full vote in the Senate as reasonably and early as possible. With that statement read, I'll turn it over to the ranking member for any comment he would have. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, as someone who has sat uh, and chaired some of these in the past, I can tell you we're in for a scintillating hearing. Uh, so, uh, gentlemen, I know you're going to make it so. So uh, let me say, however, uh, we are discussing uh, eight important treaties pending before the committee, a new protocol to the existing tracks treaty between the U.S. and Japan, which brings the treaty into line with our modern tax relationships, as well as seven other treaties and protocols the committee has considered over the past few years. As I think most members are aware, this committee has expended significant effort in recent years to obtain Senate confirmation of pending income tax treaties and protocols. In February of last year, Senator Cardin chaired a hearing together with Senator Barrasso 
on five income tax treaties and protocols with Switzerland, Hungary, Luxembourg, Chile, and the OECD multilateral. And I chaired a hearing a few months later on the Spain and Poland treaties. The committee approved all seven previous treaties last Congress. Today, we continue our consideration of tax treaties with the Japan Protocol, which was transmitted to the Senate in April. We have important and accelerating trade relationships with Japan. Being the largest and third largest economies in the world, together our countries account for nearly one-third of global GDP. The United States has consistently been the largest source of foreign direct investment in Japan, and Japan is similarly one of the top investors in the U.S. economy. American and Japanese businesses employ hundreds of thousands of people in both countries. As our trade and investment links continue to deepen, it behooves us to simplify the tax administration between our countries and ensure that an outdated tax treaty does not stand in the way of continued cross-border investment. Traditionally, tax treaties have enjoyed strong bipartisan support, and I continue to urge my colleagues in the Senate to ratify these crucial components of U.S. trade and tax policy, and I look forward to the hearing, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. We are very fortunate to have two very distinguished witnesses to testify today. First, Mr. Robert Stack, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for the International Tax Affairs Department of the United States Treasury. Second, Mr. Thomas A. Barthold, Chief of Staff, Joint Committee on Taxation, and I might add a significant advisor to the Finance Committee, where I've benefited from his advice on many occasions. So we welcome your testimony today, and we'll start with Mr. Stack first. Thank you, Senator. Chairman Isaacson, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee, I appreciate the opportunity to appear today to recommend, on behalf of the administration, favorable action on eight tax treaties pending before this committee. The proposed agreements before the committee today with Chile, Hungary, Japan, Luxembourg, Poland, Spain, and Switzerland, as well as the proposed protocol to the Convention on Mutual Administrative Assistance in Tax Matters, which I'll refer to today as the Multilateral Convention, serve to further the goals of our tax treaty network, in particular, the goals of increased transparency, relief from double taxation, and protecting U.S. tax treaties from abuse. It has now been over five years since the Senate provided its advice and consent to a tax treaty. This prolonged and unprecedented delay in approving tax treaties is inconsistent with the Senate's long history of bipartisan support for these agreements. It denies U.S. businesses important protections against double taxation. It denies our law enforcement community the tools they need to fight tax evasion. It jeopardizes U.S. leadership on issues of transparency in tax matters and causes other countries to question the United States' commitment to tax treaties. I'd like to take the opportunity at the outset to briefly address a concern that's been expressed by some in the Senate about these proposed tax treaties. As I understand it, the claim is that these agreements adopt a new and unacceptably low standard for exchanging information that departs from the prior U.S. policy of exchanging information only in cases of suspicion of tax fraud. To the contrary, the standard in the pending treaties that permits exchange of information that may be relevant or is foreseeably relevant is not new. In fact, it has been the U.S. model standard since 1996 and has subsequently been endorsed as the international standard for in to information exchange under our tax treaties. Of the 57 U.S. income tax treaties in force, all of which were approved by the Senate, only one, our existing treaty with Switzerland, refers to exchanging information 
only in cases of tax fraud or the like. This standard allowed Switzerland to become a haven for tax cheats, and that is why that treaty must be updated. Moreover, the foreseeably relevant standard has safeguards that prevent so-called phishing expeditions and ensures that information is kept confidential. Because my written statement and the Treasury technical explanations describe in detail the provisions of the eight agreements pending before this committee, I'd like to highlight only the most noteworthy aspects of each agreement. I'd like to start with the proposed protocol to the multilateral convention. If approved by the Senate, this agreement would establish several new information exchange relationships for the United States, which would enhance the IRS's ability to fight tax evasion. The proposed protocol amends the multilateral convention, which in its existing form is open to signature only by countries which are members of either the OECD or the Council of Europe, to allow any country to become a signatory, provided that all other signatories are satisfied that such country has a sufficient legal framework to ensure that information exchanged pursuant to the agreement will be kept confidential. The proposed protocols amending the US tax treaties with Luxembourg and Switzerland replace the limited information exchange provisions of the existing tax treaties with updated rules that are consistent with the international standard. The Treasury Department is hopeful that the proposed protocols with Luxembourg and Switzerland, if approved by the Senate, will greatly improve the collaboration between the IRS and the revenue authorities of Luxembourg and Switzerland in tax law enforcement matters. The proposed income tax with Chile, if approved by the Senate, would be only the second US income tax treaty in force in South America, a region into which Treasury Department has long sought to expand the US tax treaty network. The most important feature of the proposed tax treaties with Hungary and Poland, which would both replace existing tax treaties with those countries, is that each agreement contains a comprehensive limitation on benefits article, which is designed to prevent third country investors from inappropriately taking advantage of the treaty, a practice known as treaty shopping. Data from US corporate tax returns show that the existing tax treaties with Hungary and Poland, which do not have limitation on benefits provisions, are facilitating treaty shopping, and for this reason, replacing them with new agreements has been a top treaty priority for the Treasury Department. The proposed protocols amending the US tax treaties with Japan and Spain significantly reduce source tax taxation of cross-border payments of incoming gains. In addition, the proposed protocols adopt mandatory binding arbitration as a means of resolving certain disputes between the tax authorities. The proposed protocol with Switzerland also contains a mandatory binding arbitration provision. Another noteworthy feature of the proposed protocol Japan, with Japan is its adoption of rules that obligate the tax authorities to provide limited assistance to each other in the collection of taxes. While as a general matter, it's not the policy of the Treasury Department to include such assistance in collection provisions into US treaties, we concluded after consultation with the IRS that entering into such an agreement with Japan would produce a net revenue benefit to the United States. Let me repeat our appreciation for the committee's interest in these agreements. We are also grateful for the assistance and cooperation of the staffs of this committee and of the Joint Committee on Taxation, as well as the tireless work of the Treasury staff. We urge the committee and Senate to take prompt and favorable action on all eight agreements 
and I'd be happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Stagg. Mr. Barthol? <coughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the Joint Committee staff, led by my colleague Christine Roth, has prepared pamphlets covering each of the proposed treaties and protocols, and these pamphlets provide detailed descriptions of the treaties, protocols, include comparisons with U.S. model and other recent U.S. treaties, as well as providing discussion of issues raised by the proposed agreements. There are many uh, proposed agreements before your committee today. I'll highlight only a few issues presented by these agreements with some emphasis on the most recent protocol with Japan. Let me note first, though, that treaties and protocols are negotiated in the context of the tax laws of the two countries involved in the negotiation. We understand that there have been potentially noteworthy changes in the income tax laws of Chile, Poland, and Spain since the Foreign Relations Committee last considered the proposed agreements of, with those countries in 2014. In particular, in Chile, the corporate shareholder income tax, which is fully integrated, has been subject of reform legislation scheduled to take effect in 2017. And under this reform, a shareholder of a Chilean corporation who is a resident of a country with which Chile does not have an income tax treaty will be credited with 65% rather than 100% of the corporate tax paid. We also understand that the government of Spain has enacted legislation that, among other things, reduces its corporate tax rate and modifies its depreciation rules, and that the government of Poland has enacted changes to the individual income tax and corporate income tax. The committee may wish to inquire of my colleagues from the Treasury Department if they believe that these the current proposed agreements appropriately accommodate these internal law developments in these other countries. The principal purposes of income tax treaties are to reduce uh, or eliminate double taxation of income and to prevent avoidance or evasion of taxes between the two countries. And these objectives are primarily achieved through the countries agreeing to limit in certain situations its right to tax income derived from its territory by residents of the other country and providing procedures to resolve disputes. The proposed protocol with Japan broadens the scope of companies eligible for a zero withholding tax rate on parent subsidiary dividends provided under the existing treaty. The proposed protocol with Spain would bring to 13 the number of U.S. income tax treaties that provide such a zero rate on direct dividends. The U.S. model treaty does not provide a zero rate on direct dividends. And in previous testimony before the committee, the Treasury Department has stated that the dividend withholding tax should only be eliminated on the basis of an overall balance of benefits and only in situations where treaties have restrictive limitation on benefit rules and provide comprehensive information exchange. I observe that every recent U.S. income tax treaty or protocol has included restrictive limitation on benefits provisions and comprehensive income uh, information exchange provisions. Therefore, the committee may wish to inquire whether there are particular considerations that the Treasury Department will now take into account in deciding whether to negotiate for zero uh, rate direct dividend provisions in future income tax treaties and protocols, and whether the U new U.S. model treaty that's being uh, developed by the Treasury Department uh, will eliminate withholding tax on direct, div uh, direct dividends. The proposed protocol with Japan also provides for, as noted by Mr. Stack, binding, uh, mandatory and binding arbitration and mutual agreement procedure cases pending before the competent authorities that have been without resolution for two years or more. The protocols amending the Swiss and Spanish treaties also include similar provisions. While similar to arbitration procedures adopted in some recent income tax treaties, the Japanese protocol presents some significant differences. First, it does not require the presenter of the case to have filed a return with each of the two jurisdictions. It also may expedite the schedule on which the taxpayer who seeks a bilateral advanced pricing agreement uh, may uh, have it resolved 
by binding arbitration related to that advanced pricing agreement, and the proposed protocol also departs from the U.S. Model Treaty general rules limiting participation of the taxpayer in any mutual agreement proceedings by allowing that taxpayer who presents a case to submit a position paper directly to the arbitration panel. The committee may wish to consider the extent to which the inclusion of mandatory arbitration rules and the particular features of uh, the Japanese uh, protocol now represent United States policy regarding mandatory binding arbitration. In particular, you may wish to inquire about the criteria on which the Treasury Department determines whether to include such provisions, the appropriate scope of issues eligible for determination by binding arbitration, the absence of precedential value, uh, and the role of the taxpayer in an arbitration uh, proceeding. Lastly, the pending protocol with Japan also expands the mutual collection assistance available under the Japan Treaty to include taxes not otherwise covered by the treaty and to permit collection assistance against one's own nationals on behalf of the other jurisdiction in cases of fraudulent conduct by the citizen. This provision abrogates what's known as the revenue rule, a common law doctrine against providing collection assistance to which the United States has generally adhered. The changes to the scope of the collection assistance are similar to those of only five other countries, but there is no comparable provision in the U.S. Model Treaty, and the United States has expressly reserved with respect to similar provision, a similar provision that is included in the OECD Multilateral Treaty, which is also pending before this committee. The protocol's article requires the competent authorities to negotiate limitations to the extent of which assistance will be sought or provided in order to assure, ensure that the administrative burden is not unfairly imposed on the jurisdiction. The committee may want to, uh, again, explore the basis for agreeing to this departure from general policy and the criteria applied in so doing, and in addition to the concern, uh, any concerns that there might be about preserving the sovereignty of the United States and the rights of its taxpayers, uh, the risk of increased administrative burden should also be cons uh, considered. This concludes my testimony. Be pleased to answer any questions that the members might have. Thank you. Well, thank you, and thanks to both of you for your testimony today. Mr. Stack, are there any provisions in the treaties being considered today that would override current U.S. domestic tax laws requiring protection of taxpayer information, or are these treaties consistent with U.S. domestic law? Sorry, I'd say these, these provisions are, uh, these treaties are consistent with U.S. domestic law and do not override U.S. domestic law in connection with the treatment of confidential information. I think I heard you in your testimony refer to the perception of Swiss bank accounts as being a safe haven in the past. Was that a perception or was that true? And it does, in fact, the treaty set limit that being a safe haven so there's more transparency in deposits in Switzerland? Well, let me answer it this way, Senator. In the, in the report from this committee, when the Swiss treaty was reported out, the committee took note of the difficulties faced in 2008 and 2009 by the IRS and the Department of Justice in obtaining information needed to enforce U.S. tax laws against U.S. persons who utilized the services of UBS AG back then, a multinational bank based in Switzerland. What, what we expect is, and this again was reported by the Senate committee, expects that the proposed protocol, including in particular the express provision making clear that a country's bank secrecy laws cannot prevent the exchange of tax information requested pursuant to a treaty, should put the government of Switzerland in a position to prevent recurrence of such an incident in the future. So without directly saying whether it was a haven or not, we had a difficulty. The difficulty was the old treaty required a showing of fraud or the like before the Swiss would give us information. The new treaty to which they've agreed 
says the U.S. just needs to demonstrate that the information sought is foreseeably relevant to a tax investigation. In the Swiss Treaty, it says may be relevant, and that's going to make it easier for us to hunt down tax cheats that might be hiding assets in Switzerland. And that would be a consistent standard with domestic U.S. law if it was a domestic case. Is that not right? Yes, Senator. The, uh, the, the treaty standard is actually taken from our statutory standard in Section 7602, which authorizes the IRS to inspect books and re records that, quote, may be relevant to a tax inquiry. So the standard that's in the treaty and the standard that's in our statutes uh, are coterminous. And I would assume when you refer to limited cooperation in the Japan Treaty and others in terms of the collection of taxes, that that's a step forward in collecting taxes that might be owed to the United States? It, it is, Senator. Um, it is. I would add that we are very careful before we agree to enter into mutual uh, assistance and collection in our treaties simply because we do not want to put a disproportionate burden on the IRS to be spending more effort collecting taxes for the other jurisdiction then the other jurisdiction might be helping us collect. So we do a very careful balancing. Um, and so while we're happy to have this in our Japan Treaty, uh, I would not say that this will necessarily become the standard since we weigh it on a case-by-case -case basis. But yes, you're correct. It will assist us in this case in collecting taxes from people in Japan who owe the U.S. Uh, taxes. As I understand it, the tax rate on tax treaty participants in Chile is 27%. And the tax rate in Chile on non-participants in a tax treaty is 35 percent. Is that correct? The, um, I've been told that's correct. So. I, I would just say, I mean, there are different flows that might have different rates. And I would just say that under the treaty, we are reducing all of the withholding rates on payments out of Chile that otherwise might have applied in the absence of the treaty, although we've given them, because they have a unique corporate tax system, We've given them some more time to be able to collect a withholding tax on shareholders on dividends out of Chile. But generally speaking, the treaty participants get a reduced rate, um, better rate than, let's say, non-treaty participants investing in a country. Assuming my numbers are correct at 35% and 27%, an American company competing in Chile and earning money and from a country that does not have a treaty with Chile would be an 8% disadvantage competing in that country. Would that not be correct? Yes. I mean, to, to, if the point is that if we don't have our Chilean treaty, our companies can be at a disadvantage with companies that do have a treaty with Chile, that would be correct, yes. That's the, what I'm trying to get into the record. Thank you. Mr. Barthold, uh, one of the stated goals of entering into a tax treaty is to prevent tax avoidance and tax evasion. A primary tool used to prevent tax avoidance is the exchange of information between those between countries and revenue authorities. The United States has used limited exchange has used exchange of information for decades in its tax treaties. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it is, Mr. Chairman. And that's resulted in better collection. Is that correct? The Internal Revenue Service believes that uh, it's uh, it's aided in their uh, collection of uh, of liabilities that are owed, sir. Yes. Can you tell us, for the record, the, the assurances that the information of domestic U.S. taxpayers, how they're protected in these treaties, in terms of the privacy information they would otherwise have protected in the United States? The, the treaties don't grant access to taxpayer records that are beyond what's uh, provided in U.S. law. And under Code Section 6103, there's strict protection 
uh, on the ability of anyone to access taxpayers' information except for tax and uh, administration purposes. That's mainly within the Internal Revenue Service. And as part of their treaty process, and Mr. Stack can address this uh, further, before there's any exchange of information, the, uh, in the Treasury and the Internal Revenue Service uh, assure themselves that there are comparable rights or that disclosures are not permitted uh, that are beyond what is permitted under U.S. domestic law. Are there any penalties for an unauthorized release of private information by any of these treaties? I mean, would a, company, a country that accidentally or intentionally released uh, private information, is there a penalty within the treaty provided for that? Or is there an enforcement mechanism to give them the motivation to be sure they don't do that? Uh, I'm not sure. I've, there's not penalties on countries per se. There's potentially penalty on our side, on the United States person, if we are party to an unauthorized disclosure. So Mr. Stack might be at risk. So I understand breaking the treaty is probably the penalty you have. If you break the treaty, you can always dissolve the treaty. Is that correct? You could abrogate the treaty, and that would be uh, that would be a basis for uh, the administration to that's abrogate. The, that's the ultimate enforcement mechanism because these treaties are usually mutually beneficial beneficial to the companies. That's that's the idea behind the uh, behind the treaty. Thank you both for your testimony, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. When you said Mr. Stack is at risk, you meant the Treasury Department would be at risk. Well, it, it, can, be it can actually be specific individuals, uh -huh. Senator Menendez. Okay. Uh, Mr. Stack, got to watch out here. Uh, let me, uh, <clears throat> first of all, uh, I want to thank uh, uh, you, Mr. Stack, and your colleagues at Treasury for the immense work that has gone into negotiating these treaties and preparing them for consideration. I know this is, for most of this, is the second round that we've been at this. and. I know that when I was chairman, I, I wanted to push these through, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, Chairman Cork was also <clears throat> expressed a great deal of interest in trying to break the logjam here. I hope we can work with him to achieve it. And Mr. Barthold, uh, to you and your colleagues, thanks for your analysis uh, and the questions that you pose and the pamphlets that you provided to the staff, which were incredibly helpful. I, I saw uh, them, and uh, I think they're incredibly helpful in addressing the, the treaties. So. Just a few questions, and I really want to develop a record here for when we have a debate on the floor uh, to be able to refer to it, because from my, from my knowledge, this is largely uh, being impeded by one or two colleagues who have somewhat of a different view. Um, to both of you, uh, can you, since Japan is the only really new treaty that we've considered, uh, we'll be considering before the committee, could you highlight any notable departures, if there are any, from the U.S. model or any unique aspects of the Japan Treaty that we should be aware of? I, I noted a couple uh, directly uh, in my oral testimony, uh, Senator Menendez, uh, and um, uh, Mr. Stack uh, partially addressed uh, both of those. One was the mutual assistance. I mean, that's, uh, it's not provided for. Uh, it's somewhat, uh, somewhat unusual. Uh, and as I noted, it's uh, the position in the Japan Treaty is somewhat at, uh, at odds with the reservation that the United States has taken with respect to the OECD Multilateral Mutual Assistance Treaty. Uh, the other, I think, uh, uh, most notable uh, departure uh, from what we've been doing recently and, of course, from the model is the mandatory and binding arbitration. So it's not part of our model, might be part of the new model that the Treasury, uh, model treaty that the Treasury is developing. but. Uh, 
uh, I also noted within this uh, protocol, there's slightly different uh, uh, provisions of how it would operate than in the uh, four operative uh, uh, mandatory and binding arbitration provisions that, uh, that we have. Uh, one item of note is the ability of the taxpayer involved to participate in the arbitration by submitting uh, a position paper directly to the, uh, to the panel. Um, Mr. Stack, uh, your observations, and could you address yourself to the utility of the mandatory arbitration uh, procedures that we have in this? Yes, Senator. Um, mandatory arbitration has garnered the support, mandatory binding arbitration, of many countries around the world as part of the work we just finished at the OECD in connection with base erosion and profit shifting. Uh, many, many countries are hoping to move forward in including provisions on mandatory binding arbitration in treaties going forward. Why? Well, I think the, the, the reigning view is that it's a, a tremendous help to resolving cases if both of the competent authorities know that at the end of the day, their, their distinct positions will be presented to a neutral arbiter. And you may or may not be aware that we use a particular type of arbitration in uh, our tax treaties, which is sometimes called baseball arbitration or last best offer. And what that means is the arbitrator must choose between the, only between the positions given by the two countries with respect to the tax issue before it. And the feeling is that this helps the tax administration move towards a, a more reasonable position because they know that at the end of the day, the arbitrator is bound to choose only one of the two government positions. It is also the hope with arbitration that when the entire tax administration in a country is aware that at the end of the day, some neutral party is going to decide which country has the better claim to the income, that this could improve administration throughout the, the governments that we deal with. So the goal of an arbitration provision is often said not to be to have an arbitration, but to simply help the system uh, more easily resolve cases uh, as we go through the process. Yeah. Uh, I can see that. When I was mayor and negotiating with police and fire unions, we had a oh. very similar process, and it brought people to a much more reasonable uh, offer because they wanted to be closer to the offer that the arbitrator would choose at the end of the day. Uh, Mr. Bartholo, let me ask you, uh, with reference to um, my understanding that these treaties, in essence, the reason we pursue them is in large part to lower the tax burden of U.S. Uh, companies uh, or firms operating abroad. Uh, could you give us a sense of how this does that? Well, there are, there are a number of different, uh, different ways. Countries uh, impose uh, withholding taxes on cross-border distributions, such as the, uh, the point I noted on the zero uh, rate on a distribution of a dividend from a subsidiary to a parent, which is provided anew at a, at a, 100, uh, at a zero rate under the Spanish treaty, and the uh, eligible companies uh, uh, have been expanded for the zero rate under the Japanese treaty. The default in uh, American law is a 30% withholding rate on a payment out of the United States. Other countries have comparable rates on payments out of their country into the United States. So in the treaties, we mutually agree to, to, lower, the, uh, to lower those rates. While the, such taxes might be creditable under the different tax systems of those countries, um, sometimes tax credits are not always uh, currently available because of foreign tax credit uh, limitations. Uh, and so 
you've got a direct effect of lowering the tax rate on earnings uh, by U.S. enterprises that are earned abroad when they're, when they're paid back in that situation. Some other situations that arise is it's possible that the income tax base of uh, foreign country is somewhat different than the income tax base in the United States. Uh, and so uh, it might be the perception of both countries' uh, tax ad, uh, administrators that there's some part of income that's earned uh, that they get to tax. And that's the clear case of double taxation. And uh, a primary purpose of the treaties is to try and lay out a number of specific instances where, no, this is yours and, and this is mine, so that you eliminate uh, clear cases of double taxation. Mr. Chairman, I have a question to your left, but I'm happy to wait for the next round. Of, no, okay. Uh, uh, Mr. Stack, my understanding is that Treasury, Treasury typically prioritizes um, the negotiation of new tax treaties partially based on where U.S. individuals and businesses stand to see the most benefit from reducing, for example, double taxation. What kind of support is there in the business community for ratification of these treaties? There's um, extraordinary support. I think in the opening, you mentioned some letters coming in from business groups. Um, and, and in our prior hearings, Senator, as you may recall, the National Foreign Trade Council and the Organization for International Investment came here and testified. Um, so we have felt nothing but very strong support from the business community because they would very much like the benefits that uh, Mr. Barthold mentioned in terms of cross-border investment. And then two final sets of questions. One is, I understand the Spain protocol includes a provision that requires the U.S. and Spain to begin negotiations within six months from the protocol entering into force to conclude an agreement to avoid double taxation on investments between Puerto Rico and Spain. Given that Puerto Rico uh, administers its own tax system but cannot enter into treaties, how is Treasury planning to uh, work uh, with its Spanish counterparts to extend the benefits of the protocol to Puerto Rico. Thank you, Senator. Um, just, to, just for the record, the um, paragraph three of the protocol commits the contracting states to initiate discussions as soon as possible, but no later than six months after the entry into force of the 2013 protocol regarding the conclusion of an appropriate agreement to avoid double taxation on investments between Puerto Rico and Spain. And I believe as we discussed in prior hearings, the United States actually has reached out and worked with both Puerto Rico and Spain in advance of that deadline since we have, obviously, the treaty has not yet entered into force. The, the, the concept of how to handle the double tax issues between Puerto, Puerto Rico and Spain raises complex legal and political questions. And in our involvement to date, we are seeking to see if the agreement referenced in the protocol could be somehow handled by both Spain and Puerto Rico via a statutory approach, where, for example, Puerto Rico could lessen withholding taxes on investments in Spain and vice versa. This is an analogy to the, agree, uh, the, the, pr the process undertaken by Guam. We will re return to this uh, issue in full once the agreement in force is in, is in, I'm sorry, the agreement is in force, and with respect to the discussions, we've started and continue them as well. And finally, uh one of the, if not the biggest hurdle that I understand uh, uh, some of my colleagues have in supporting this is something that the chairman started off with you, and that is the question of information exchange and uh, privacy and other issues which, in part, you, you touched upon. I, I just 
want you for the record uh, to talk about uh, how has standards on information exchange in these treaties changed from previous ones? Does the may be relevant standard in the treaties before us today represent a new standard not used in previous tax treaties? Um, and uh, in your view, is there any reason why people who have a foreign bank account should be treated any differently from a U.S. citizen who has a bank account in the United States? Thank you, Senator. As I mentioned in my opening statement, um, this is not a new standard. What, what has happened over time is sometimes it's been labeled uh, such information as is relevant, as may be relevant. And, and over time, the OECD has adopted a phrase foreseeably relevant, which is what we tend to see in our current treaties. Each of these standards really are about a, a simple idea, which is that when another country is asking us for tax information, they must demonstrate that there's a link between the information sought and some actual tax investigation of a taxpayer um, so that we can avoid what's called a fishing expedition where people can just come in and say, give me all the information possible about this or that. The confusion in this space, I think, was, has been caused by the fact that Switzerland alone, out of 57 treaties, has a standard that said one country can only get information from the other if there's a demonstration of fraud or the like, a much higher standard before a tax authority could investigate assets of others abroad. Um, but as I mentioned in the opening, the maybe relevant, foreseeably relevant, has been on our model since 1996. The Senate has already ratified 14 treaties, I'm told, since 1999 with a version of this standard in the treaty. In terms of the bank accounts, um, I would just say that the, um, there is no reason to treat, let's say, someone with a foreign bank account different from someone with a U.S. bank account when it comes to the ability of a tax authority to find out whether the person has been uh, evading taxes. And these information exchange provisions put people with foreign bank accounts on an equal footing with U.S. citizens who have bank accounts here in the U.S. As I just mentioned earlier, under the code, the IRS has authority to seek information that, quote, may be relevant or material. The treaties before the committee today permit the IRS to request information that is foreseeably relevant, even if there's a variation in the, in the phrasing. So in the tax treaty context, this standard and these provisions are critical to ensure that taxpayers cannot avoid their obligations by the simple device of shifting accounts overseas and getting better treatment than their U.S. resident counterparts. Thank you very much. In light of the question originally asked by Senator Mendez, I will add to my unanimous consent record that the unanimous consent for the three letters that I introduced, one of those letters was from 77 United States companies from Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola to Baxter and Caterpillar and everybody else in between in favor of these treaties. And so I, th I thought- Coca-Cola from Georgia? Coca-Cola, yeah, they're a small bottling company in Georgia. <laughs> and Pepsi-Cola, their competitors on here too, so we got competitors on there just alike. And secondly, I, would, I want to echo the compliments uh, Senator Mendez made to you all on the information you supplied to the committee and the staff and tell you that when we go into binding arbitration as a country, I'm glad we've got two people like you all on our side of the table and not on the other side. So thank you for your service to the country, and we'll do everything we can to expedite the consideration of the treaties. If there's no further comment or question, the hearing stand adjourned. Thank you.